This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Darren Brown is Native American. His mother and father are Cochiti. They met at a hospital, and then the story gets really complicated. Well, you know, they got to talk, and you know how it goes, one thing led to another. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so she became pregnant. Before he was born, she left and went to Oklahoma City and had her child there. And then she put me up for adoption and went back to work as if nothing had happened. And, uh, my biological father said, hey, where have you been? Uh, she said, hey, I, I got pregnant. I didn't, I didn't think that you wanted to deal with with that, the way you were acting, yada, 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 and had a child, almost, I, I almost died, and he said, well, where is our child? And she said, it died. But I'm here to tell you, JJ, I am here. I'm good to go. Alive and kicking. Um, yeah. And imagine their surprise when he showed up decades later after being raised in a white family. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Tony McAleer grew up affluent and privileged in Canada and the UK, but something was missing in his life. So he turned to white supremacy. I was not a tough kid growing up. Uh, and when when I came across you know skinheads and met them, and I was terrified of them, but I was also drawn to them because they had the one thing I didn't, and that was toughness. And what I got from joining uh, with those guys is people feared me for the first time, not because of me, but because of who I, who I was. And I got power when I felt powerless. He spent many years promoting white supremacy until something happened. The birth of my my daughter and my son 15 months later, and by the time they were four and six, I was a full-time single father. He started thinking about the world he was creating for them, and he had had enough. He wrote The Cure for Hate, a former white supremacist journey from violent extremist to radical compassion. We talked to him about it all and what he's doing to make amends. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. My name is Hagar Shamali, and I'm from Connecticut. I'm American Lebanese. I'm Rick Massimo. I live in Washington, D.C., and I'm white. My name is Susie Askew. I am a Korean-American living in Tacoma, Washington. And I'm J.J. Green. I'm black, and this is Colors. Tony McAleer was an affluent, middle-class, private school-attending son of a doctor who ended up spending 15 years as a leader, recruiter, and a propagandist for the white supremacist movement, the white Aryan resistance. We call them the skinheads. They operated in the U.S. and Canada. But something happened along his journey, and he changed. He's now become an eloquent spokesperson for those who have left white supremacist movements, and he joins us here today at a very important time in our history in the U.S. to talk about what he's doing and what happened to him. Mr. McAleer, let me just say, first of all, thank you for joining me on Colors. 
This program has been running since a couple of weeks after George Floyd's death in 2020. And being an African-American man, this was something that I felt like I had to do. I felt like I needed to do this discussion, have it so that people could understand the true depth of the racial consternation or racial issues and problems that we have in this country. One of the shows that I've always wanted to do was to talk with someone who is a former white supremacist or skinhead or whatever you use, term you use to describe your former affiliation. But I wanted it to be the right person. There were people out there that I could have talked to, but it needed to be the right person, the person who could put this situation that we in the U.S. and the world are in in the right context. And I think you're the perfect guy to do this. So you are the author of The Cure for Hate, a former white supremacist confronts the legacy of the Holocaust. You've done a heck of a lot more than that. And we're going to talk about that today. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Looking at the book, and I was just watching this, a short clip of this documentary that you're working on. And there were so many questions that popped into my head. And one of the first ones, you know, I saw that you said 20 years ago, you were a fervent neo-Nazi and that you still struggle with that. Why? I don't know that I struggle with that today. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, from the early 80s to the late 90s, I spent 15 years inside that that movement. Um, the, The film that I shared with you is is really inspired by the 12th chapter of the book called Chuva uh, or Atonement. And in going back to Auschwitz, um, you know, the, the discomfort and, and what I'm talking about on screen there is going back and, and confronting my role in, in, in anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial, confronting my past. Um, you know, you know, there's parts of our past and, and maybe this, um, parallels with with national conversations that are uncomfortable to look at it and and it was it was something that i had to do and it's uh, to go through and it, it it's not just an intellectual journey to acknowledge the things that i did um it was very much a journey to feel mm-hmm. um what i what i'd said and done and the damage that i had done and the making of the film is is uh, sort of an act of um, atonement to the Jewish community, one of the communities which I, I had harmed the most. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's easy to say, well, I did that, you know, 15, 20 years ago or 20, 30 years ago. Um, but to acknowledge that I did those things, to stand in that place where 6 million people were murdered, to confront the shadow self, mm-hmm. it's, it's not not an easy thing. So it's there's all parts of our parts of ourselves that we don't want to acknowledge. And it's, it, it's sometimes it's difficult to acknowledge them, but it's important that we do. One of the things I want to do is to dig into, I guess, the essence of people who still today consider themselves white supremacist. And I saw a clip of someone asking you a question and they ask you what happened to your humanity. And you said you traded it in for acceptance and approval. Uh, walk us through who you were trading that into. 
Right. So I, I, I grew up an affluent kid, went to private school, you know, everything was, you know, uh, really good. And I walked, when I was 10, I walked in on my dad with another woman and that really sort of rocked, rocked my world and, and lost all trust and authority and, and, and really sort of sent me, I went from an A and a B student to a C and a D student. And, uh, I went to Catholic school and that time, you know, they tried to beat the grades into me. And I remember being in that office over and over and over again, you know, getting hit on the rear end with a meter stick or a yardstick. And to this day, I don't think I've ever felt more powerless than I did in that office over and over and over again. And I was not a tough kid growing up. Uh, and when, when I came across, you know, skinheads and met them and I was terrified of them, but I was also drawn to them because they had the one thing I didn't, and that was toughness. And what I got from joining uh, with those guys is people feared me for the first time, not because of me, but because of who I, who I was. And I got power when I felt powerless, I got acceptance uh, and approval when I felt unlovable and I got attention when I felt invisible. And it's, I think it's, when we have a deficit of these things in our lives, those are the vulnerabilities which make these movements seductive because they offer a false shortcut to get those things. I didn't have power. I had the perception in my mind that I did, but I didn't have power. And that's, that's the, the, the seduction. And I think people get drawn to these things through those vulnerabilities. And I talk a lot about the concept of toxic shame Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's a lot of, discussion in society about that at an individual and on a collective level uh, about trauma. But, you know, if we ask a deeper question, what is it that trauma actually does? And trauma informs our self, our subconscious self-identity belief system uh, that we hold about ourselves and gives us false information. You know, there's trauma is like disinformation. Uh, toxic shame is like disinformation uh, for the soul. It's, it's like fake news in your psyche. It's, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You, you, you'll never be fast enough or whatever these lies that we believe about ourselves. And we spent an inordinate amount of time going out into the world to convince the world that we're not that. Um, if I feel less than one thing I can do is, is I can adopt an ideology that says I'm greater than, um, Mm -hmm. and we either project that onto other people you know, that toxic shame, we project, and that's through verbal violence, emotional violence, physical violence, um, in, in a way to make ourselves compensate for that sense of weakness that we believe, or we internalize it. Toxic shame is something that we spend an inordinate amount of time to hide from the world. And toxic shame is also the dirty little secret we keep from ourselves. When we internalize it, we numb ourselves with substances, eating disorders, um, with a whole whole pile of things. Uh, Dr. James Gilligan, who's uh, a forensic psychiatrist at, I think it was San Quentin, 20 years in the prison system as a psychiatrist, said that all violence, um, shame was the root of all, mm-hmm. all violence. And, it was, and, and that violence was an attempt to convert shame into self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, that, and there's another guy, Dr. John Bradshaw, who was an addictions guy, says the same thing. You know, and it's just whether we externalize it or internalize it. And, you know, joining a, a violent extremist group or a skinhead group, um, that's, what it, that's what it was for me. And I, I, think, I don't think it's any different for people that join gangs or people that, that 
there's a whole spectrum of antisocial outcomes that come in our ability to, to hide and, and disguise our shame. You know, what you were doing was, I think you said, was it 15 years ago, you said, uh, or was it? I left in 1998, so I've left 20 years ago. You left from... 20 years ago. So this started how many years back? 35. 35 years ago. Has white supremacy changed much um, in those years? Has it evolved uh, the way one would expect? Uh, you know, the rest of society has evolved. Things, technology evolves. Most people evolve. But has the basic premises of white supremacy evolved at all? I don't believe so. Uh, not, not to any great degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were talking about uh, in the 90s, you know, putting on suit and ties to appear more reasonable and, and, and all of that stuff, the, the core tenets of white supremacy. I mean, when it comes to neo-Nazis, we're talking a hundred year old ideology. Mm-hmm. Right? And, but what has changed is technology has changed. The reach has changed. The, um, the, the amount of people that you can reach with the minimal amount of effort that has changed and the way that we consume information has changed when i was when i was active and i was right at the beginning of the internet but you had to mail away for a book and you might get it a month later or a videotape and you might get it a month later and then you'd read that and maybe send away for another book or two the process of radicalization took um, months and years now with the amount of information available at 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 a click on the internet, you can binge watch an ideology in a, in a weekend or so it's now down to weeks and months, not, not, um, not yeah. uh, months and years. Yeah. You know, if you look at Dylan roof, he started off with black on white crime as a search and went down that, that rabbit hole. So technology, technology is the game changer. Yeah. So, you said also we ignore the lessons of history at our own peril. And, you know, a lot's been done uh, over, over the years to, to deal with white supremacy and to deal with uh, up, uh, the racial issues in America and in other countries. But it seems to me, as an African-American who grew up in the South, who now lives in, in Washington, D.C., which is still the South, if you, if you really want to look at it, where the Mason-Dixon line is located, it's pretty much still, it's just not thought of that way, but it's not the Deep South. But um, it seems to me a lot of people have forgotten just how difficult things were, were in the 60s and the 70s. And I'm wondering, based on what you've seen, take a look at January 6th, America had a heart attack on that day, you know? And there's this question about whether we're doing anything like heart attack victims who survive are supposed to do. You know, you're supposed to make some changes. So I'm just wondering, did we ignore? Have we? Does it seem like we're ignoring this? What went down on the 6th of January here in this country? Um, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. But it's are we are we employing the right the right tactics to make a difference? And and. You know, I said these same things sort of after Charlottesville because Charlottesville was another heart attack, right? This is not the first heart attack. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, one was a stroke and one was a heart attack. Yeah. Um, but, it's, it, you know, I think it's very important to call people out, but we have to be prepared to call people in. 
And we we can't just condemn and call people names and and widen the brush with which we condemn and and judge and and dehumanize and, and all all of that thing. If we if we continue to do that, we were just going to increase the polarization. And that doesn't mean that we just give people a pass. You know, it's important to call people out, like I said, in a healthy way. But we must be prepared to call people in and and. Tony, you know, let, me, starts, let me let me jump in and ask a question very briefly. Are you saying essentially we need to have a truth and reconciliation period here, like Nelson Mandela and South Africa did um, back? I think it was in the nineties. I, I think I think that ab- absolutely has to happen. I don't know if it could happen in this current climate. Um, you know, justice isn't revenge. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, having, having a, a truth and reconciliation, reconciliation commission to get down to things, honestly, and at a heart level without, without it becoming partisan. I'm not sure if, if we're there yet, it absolutely has to happen. And, and it's something that's starting to happen in Canada with, uh, with the first nations mm. uh, people it has a long way, a long way to go, but there, there is examples um, there is examples of it, of it happening in, on this continent and, and examples that, that we can use, um, to guide things, but I'm, I'm not sure that there's, uh, I'm not sure that the, yeah. maybe this sounds harsh, that there's the political maturity to do it. Yeah. I hear you. I hear what you're saying. You know, at this point, this may not be the best moment for that, but I do agree at some point in time, maybe it should be. Um, something we do here. Um, so- and that's, that's what, that's part of what the film is about. I mean, yes, I'm going back to Auschwitz, but I also wanted to um, perhaps show a model, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not saying I'm the authority and I'm the perfect and I, I know what I'm doing, but of, of healthy atonement. Yeah. You know, what, what, what does that look like as I go back to try and repair the damage that I've done to the, to the Jewish community. I also, consciously aware that there's other conversations that definitely have to happen in the North American context. I'm not sure that, that people know how to do that in a healthy way. Yeah, that is a very interesting point. So the pathway back, how do you, how do you talk to people that, you know, how do you talk to people who are caught up in this, this white supremacist, these white supremacist ideology and, and how do you, how do you, do you, coach or try to give or show these people a way out of it or way back? Yeah. So, so as much, as much as it's about the ideology, it's not about the ideology. And as long as we're, we're coming at this with trying to change the ideas in people's heads, um, we're not going to get anywhere. Right. And, and the challenge is, is, is people's ideology and their identity become intertwined, Hmm. right? White supremacy just wasn't, what I believed it was who I was. It was the music I listened to. It was the clothes I wore, the people I hung out with the videos I watched. It was how, who I was. It wasn't just what I believed. And so the challenge is, is when you attacked my ideology, you also attack my identity. Mm-hmm. And when, the, when, when we attack someone's identity, the ego defense mechanisms come in, they, they shut down or they, they, deflect or, or whatever. You can't really have a, a an honest, uh, an honest discussion. 
So the, it, it's not to go in through the head. We have to go in through the heart because the heart doesn't have those ego defense mechanisms. And, and often, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, what, what do you say to these people? And I said, well, the first thing I do is I, I don't say anything. I listen, mm. you know, very often these people have a real grievance. It's real to them at any rate. And, you know, often grievance can be subjective, um, but they've never had a chance to express it without judgment. You know, often where they go with their grievance is often, you know, uh, completely bazonkers. You know, it's completely offside, but it, it doesn't mean that there's not an underlying grievance um, that they're working through that, that sort of led them here. And, you know, often when, when we give people a safe space to be vulnerable, you know, that's when the, the, the walls come down when they don't feel they need to keep the armor up. Mm-hmm. And then we can start to have meaningful, meaningful discussions. I don't, I'm not a counselor or a therapist, so I don't help them through any of those things. But I do operate as from time to time as a coach um, and a mentor. And, and often, you know, there's, I, I often just describe, you know, I, I look at skinheads and, and neo-Nazis and I, I see wounded little boys mm. like I was. Um, that's not to diminish their capacity to do harm um, because there's nothing more. I, I, I see them as adult, adult men having, two-year-old temper tantrums in it, but they're in an adult body. And I don't think, I think there's, there's nothing more dangerous than in a, in a, a grown adult man having a two-year-old temper tantrum. Yeah. Um, so I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize it um, there, but you know, often there, there people are acting out of their wounds. Yeah. And when we can help them get healing for those wounds, you know, the anger goes away when we can help them learn to accept themselves, when we connect them to their own humanity, um, they can begin to, to connect to the humanity in others. They can begin to recognize the humanity in others. I, I truly believe that the level to which we dehumanize other human beings, for whatever reason, is a mirror reflection of our own disconnection and dehumanization. And that takes us back to shame. It's an alienation of the self. When they talk about people are being self-loathing, I think that's what they're that's what they're talking about. And, and I was so disconnected from my humanity and, and I couldn't possibly recognize the humanity in others because I couldn't connect to my own. What triggered then your, your return, your recapacitation that, that, that the moment that you said to yourself, okay, I, I, enough of this, I got to stop this. I, I want something different. What triggered it? The birth of my, my daughter and my son 15 months later. And by the time they were four and six, I was a full-time single father. So at, at the beginning, it was a, a pragmatic choice in order to, to raise um, my family. But there was, some, there was a gift my, ch- my children gave to me. And, and, you know, it's safe to love a child at that age. And, and so I was able to begin to thaw. I was able to let my heart open up with them because at that age, they're not capable of rejection. They're not capable of ridicule. They're not... Um, they're not capable of those things until, until they're about 13 and it's all they want to do. Hmm. But at that time it, it provided a safe space and, and they, they provided with my first lesson in compassion. Cause I'll say this compassion is the antidote to shame. Hmm. And I saw my humanity reflected back at me through their eyes. They saw this magnificent 
dad and this magnificent human being. And I looked in the mirror and I didn't see that. And I saw my humanity reflected back at me through their, through their eyes. And my mom had to help me, you know, raise them. And she taught me a very important lesson about compassion. Her love for me was unconditional, but her relationship with me was very conditional. And she used that to leverage me away from going to events and social circles and, and that type of thing. Because when I left the movement, I kept the ideology intact because it, I had too much identity wrapped up in it. Um, and, and what I said to myself is, well, you know, why should I go and fight for a bunch of white people who don't care if I live or die? If I'm going to contribute to the white race, I'll make sure these two children thrive and survive. And that's, that's how the ego rationalized leaving, leaving the movement. But as I put distance between my, myself and the movement, as I started to open up my heart with, with, uh, with my children and I left in 98, 2005, I met, um, I met a mentor who sort of began the healing work um, for me. And, and uh, I'd started a new career in 2004 as a uh, financial advisor. And uh, I still am that today. And I was, you know, having some success and I started to do these personal growth workshops um, that are, you know, get out of your own way and limiting beliefs and the ego and stuff like that. And I started to do these workshops with this guy, a friend of mine introduced me to, um, you know, I was born in, uh, around Liverpool. He was from Manchester. He's about two years older. That's sort of 10 years older. And we bonded over quirky English things like Monty Python and, and eighties Britpop. Yeah. And as I started to do these courses and, and work on developing myself, my life started to transform. My relationship with my children changed and my uh, income changed. All kinds of things started to change. And it was after about eight months of doing these courses and I really got to become a good friend with this guy. And, and um, it was a relationship I valued. The friend who introduced us gives me, gives me uh, an envelope for my birthday. And I open up the envelope and I pull out a gift certificate. And it's a gift certificate for a one-on-one -on -one counseling session with this guy. And I'm like, great. Who doesn't want counseling for their birthday? Mm. Best present ever. So I go into that session and I'm telling about why I'm angry at my mom and my dad. And uh, they beat me at school and all these things as you do in your, in your first session. And I'm thinking to myself, do I tell them the rest? And I was really terrified to tell, because this was a relationship I valued, but I, in my in my experience, when people found out about my past, and because it wasn't that long ago before, it was the end of the relationship. So I'm humming and hawing and, and looking around for the room for an answer and the carpet and the ceiling. And he's like, mate, just tell me. It's okay. Whatever it is you need to say, just let me know. It's, it's okay. And I'm humming and hawing and looking around. And he goes, mate, you look, you look like you're trying to swallow three golf balls. Just let it out. And... I decided what the hell. And I give him the reader's digest of being a neo-Nazi, a skinhead, the violence, the, the, the Holocaust denial. And the more I tell him, the more he starts smiling. And the more he starts smiling, the more I get annoyed. Here I am bearing my soul in my very first counseling session that I've ever had in my life. And here he is kind of laughing at me. And I said, you know, what's so funny? And he leaned in with a big grin on his face. And he said, you know, I'm Jewish, right? Of course, you know, here's this man who loves me, wants to help me, wants to heal me and, and see the best for me and my family. I lean back into the chair, cheeks burning with shame, 
knowing that I'd once advocated for the annihilation of him and his people. And he looked at me and he said, I see you. I see little Tony. And that's what you did. That's not who you are. And with that, I, I broke down crying. Hmm. And with the acknowledgement of understanding, like, if he could love me, surely I could learn to love myself. Yourself. That is an amazing story, Tony McAleer. So um, you said, <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, you said a lot of things in there, but one of the things I heard you say as well, that it's difficult to leave hate, to leave the groups, to leave the ideology behind. And to I, leave the identity. To leave the identity behind. Um, so I'm assuming that this session that you had with this guy may be a part of what you use when you talk to people about leaving it behind or you try to help them extricate themselves. Is that, is that a part of your process? I, I just remember the words that he, that he said to me. And because in, in those words, that's what you did. That's not who you are. You know, that's separating who I am from what I did. That's separating me from me now from that identity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that he didn't reject me in that moment. What I felt I was going to get rejected most, you know, providing that safe space, it, it opened things up so that we could, you know, go, go deeper and, and, and deeper. And, you know, when he said, I see little Tony, what he was saying is I, I see, you know, the little Tony that came into the world. And I remember who I was at, at when I was four was this bright, curious, stubborn, mischievous, defiant, open to the world, curious guy, little guy. And along the way, stuff happens to us. Yeah. And we become less curious. We become less open and we put on armor and we wear masks to project ourselves to be someone that we're not in order to feel safe. Yeah. So there. Go. And with him, we dismantled that the masks and the armor. Couple more things. Um, so, back to the United States. You know, in the last few years, since Charlottesville, certainly, and even before that, there's been this upswing of racial problems. You know, they've always been them. They've always been here, but they seem to be in a whole different place now. How would you? advocate or what would you recommend we here in the United States and those of us who are concerned about the rise of neo-Nazis and skinheads and the rise of hate, uh, racial hatred, you know, from across the, the spectrum, what, what would you recommend we do to deal with this? So I'm, I'm going to go back to healthy boundaries and c- compassion with healthy boundaries and con- consequences. And, and we need to call people out, but be prepared to call um, people in. And, and sometimes law enforcement um, can be part of that healthy boundaries and consequences. I understand that law enforcement can also not be healthy boundaries and consequences. But there's a law enforcement angle to dealing with this that, that um, sort of need, there needs to be a response when people are organizing with violence and that type of thing. But we need to also um, call them in. 
and and that's that's a really hard thing to do but um we're not going to get out of this problem by heaping shame and judgment on on the other and and knowing where the how people get drawn into these movements it's not about the ideology you know and we can't get fixated on what it is they believe we have to deal with it when when it acts out you know like january 6th and and, and other, other things but we have to understand below that what what's drawn them there in the first place and what's drawn them there in the first place you know again it drives it, it draws people addiction it draws people to gangs it draws people to a whole variety of things this is a sort of a, a whole of society approach a whole of society solution and we can't afford to dehumanize or, or not have compassion for anyone in our, in our society. I think the second we determine that certain people are not worthy of compassion, I think we're in real, real trouble. And, and it, but it's hard to do. It's hard to have compassion for someone who has no compassion, but sometimes they're the ones that need it most. Yeah. So you just keep at it, huh? Even when they reject you or when, they don't seem to be listening. You just keep at it. Is that it? Yeah, I think we, you know, coming down to individuals, you know, and I I said the story, you know, McDonald's in Vancouver for a while had kale salad. And and if you told me 10 years ago, McDonald's is going to have kale salad. I say, you're out of your effing mind. (laughs) So how does McDonald's get kale salad? And it's, it gets there through the individual choices people are making with every fork or spoon of food they put into their mouth. It's millions and millions and millions of tiny little choices that, that end up with someone, a company like McDonald's having, having kale salad. And I think how we relate to each other is no different. It's, it's who we choose to be in every moment of every day as human beings, we have this wonderful power to be able to inspire others for better, for worse. Mm-hmm. And we have to choose who am I going to be in this moment to inspire others, to make this world a better place. And I know that kind of sounds a, a, a bit, a bit out there, but we have to infect people with the virus of compassion. Otherwise, you know, we can get rid of the, the, the neo-Nazis and there'll be another group that we're all worked up and judgmental about and, and angry and we have to get out of the cycle of outrage. I think as a society, we become addicted to outrage I turn off cable news. <laughs> yeah. I did that after the election and I re- and I turned it on and I was listening to like, listening to my body. And I'm like, like, this is not making, my body doesn't feel good when I'm consuming this. Yeah. I'm angry. I'm agitated. I'm, you know, that's not healthy. And I think as a society, we become addicted to outrage. And we need to, uh, you know, we need to uh, reduce our consumption because it's toxic. It's toxic to our minds. It's toxic to our bodies. That's remarkable. I hadn't ever thought of the ability to be addicted to outrage, but you're exactly right. It, It can happen. And now that I think about it, I can find as a news reporter, a correspondent, certainly covering national security for 17 years, I can see exactly what you're talking about that's 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 my day job this this (laughs) this is my labor of love here and you know i just think this needs to happen and needs to be done and you know there i've had a bunch of conversations with people on this podcast but i can say for sure this is 
right there at the very top of the list of insightful conversations that I've had. And I want to ask you one more question before before I go. Um, so you went to um, Auschwitz, and there was that one room at the end, the room with the hair. Can you tell us about that experience and why that was so powerful? Yeah, I, we didn't film in there, obviously, because it's the hair is human remains. But in that room was the hair of 30,000 women um, from, from the Holocaust. And, you know, short hair, long hair, brown hair, blonde hair, hair in braids and ponytails and, and everything. And, and um, they collected the hair from uh, the female prisoners and they sent them to textile factories for for coats and blankets for the military and stuff like that. And, you know, each of the rooms I went to where they have artifacts at, at Auschwitz overwhelming with a different feeling. So when I was in the room with the suitcases, I was overwhelmed with hopelessness. When I was in the room with the hair, I was overwhelmed with the feeling of nausea and disgust. And, and I just sat there for, for half an hour, just in that feeling, taking it in. And it wasn't until I went to Birkenau the next day, I'm looking over across the, the scale of, of Birkenau and that feeling, same feeling came back. But this time I was able to connect it to, I had an intellectual understanding what I did and said in my time in that life as a, as a white supremacist, um, I intellectually was repulsed and disgusted by it. But there in Birkenau, uh, and I think at the catalyst of the day before, certainly there, I actually felt a visceral, visceral emotional disgust at, a, at a, a, lo- a deep level that I had never experienced before at what I, at my, Mm-hmm. what I had said and what I'd done in my, in my activities. And it was in, incredibly, incredibly um, powerful. And, uh, and I think, again, there, there's a parallel to looking at um, events in the North American context and the African American context where people should have that experience to, take in and, and really be emotionally understand what was done. Yeah. Not just intellectually or ideologically understand what happened in, in, uh, in, the, in America. Yeah. Like I said to you, um, this has been one of the, the most powerful interviews I've ever done, not because I have anything to do with it, but because of you and your story and your ability to connect the thing, the reason I asked you to recite that last piece there regarding the room with the hair was because of the way you set it up in your, your, your documentary talking about your attempt to atone, your attempt to connect with that and to own it and deal with it. And I think that's the only way that we're going to survive as a nation and as a world, what we're, what we're in now. I mean, cause we're in some deep stuff now, but that's the only way I think Tony, we're going to survive that. So 
I want to thank you for joining us and ask if you have anything you want to add here. No, no, uh, thank you. I think this has been a, a, a wonderful uh, and insightful. It's, it's been, I don't know, enjoyable is not, not always the right, right <laughs> word, but <laughs> um, I'm really glad I had the opportunity to come on this show and, and your questions were, were really deep and insightful and I don't always get those. Well, thank you. Um, like I said, I've been looking for the opportunity and I, there are many, a number of that had come along and I just couldn't figure out why it just didn't, it never happened and didn't feel right. And so the moment that I saw your story and what you were doing with this series, the, the book and the documentary, read a little bit about it and saw some of the video, I said, this is the guy. So thank you, Tony McAleer, for doing this. And uh, we will certainly be here, follow your progress, be willing to help you in any way we can to promote what you're doing, because this is something we, we need it. It's got to happen, and it's it, it has to be done sooner than later. So thank you so much, my friend. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Colors. Hi, my name is Sahara. I'm African-American and live in New York City. Since 2020, I have joined two boards, one school board and one nonprofit board, and have been asked to help start and grow strategic initiatives around diversity. To this work, I not only bring my personal experience as a Black woman, but my professional experience working with mostly Black students in Baltimore City, Maryland, and leading other programs for diverse communities. For the past years, these boards and organizations that I'm a part of have been reading, listening, gaining new perspectives, which is certainly valuable. But now a year plus after these organizations and leaders have began their quote-unquote racial reckoning and it's time to implement change, it seems that we've hit a roadblock. And when I think about not just equity, but justice, what I think that really means is a major shift in power dynamics and the dismantling of systems. And that's not exactly what I think leadership wants to hear. And so as I sit in these meetings, what I'm often wrestling with is not just the fact that I'm a black woman, but a young black woman. At 29, I want change now and change of any kind doesn't really scare me. And so I was venting to my mom about this recently and said something like, I know I should really practice patience. And she immediately cuts me off to say, no, you don't. Your time is now. One of my favorite quotes that I've been hearing a lot of in recent memory is the Audre Lorde quote, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And to me, this means we cannot stay confined to the status quo if we want change. And I certainly don't have all the answers on how to do that. But what I do know is we need to be brave, we need to be vulnerable, and we need to move with intention. But to move with intention doesn't mean move slowly. We've waited long enough. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. My name is Hagar Shamali, and I'm from Connecticut. I'm American Lebanese. I'm Rick Massimo. I live in Washington, D.C., and I'm white. My name is Susie Askew. I am a Korean-American living in Tacoma, Washington. And I'm J.J. Green. I'm black. And this is Colors. 
Coming up in a moment, you're going to hear about a fantastic show coming up on our next episode. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about our program or a guest suggestion or a topic suggestion, send us an email and you can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. Coming up in our next episode of Colors... Shonda Buchanan is a renowned author, poet, artist, and educator, and she's written a new book called Black Indian, a memoir. And in this book, she challenges us to think deeper about who we are, not just as blacks or Indians, but any race. And in the process, she's gotten some pushback. I get from some black folks that, why do you have to claim Indian? Do you, is, are you trying to be better than us? At the same time, I've gotten from American Indians, you know, why do you claim you're black? Why can't you just stay Indian? Why can't you just, you know, maintain this side of the culture? And so why, and I'm like, why do you, oh, why do you think they do that? It makes them feel safe. safe. It makes them, mm-hmm, it makes people feel safe to be able to categorize you and keep you on their side. It's a fascinating discussion about racial identity, backlash, the census, American culture, and much, much more. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. And as we go today, I want to say thank you to Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Ron Pemberton, Joel Oxley, Julia Ziegler, Gretchen Soren, Allison McGinley, Jennifer Selig, Pierre Thomas, Stephen Portnoy, Peter Masurlian, Jasmine Orsted, Melissa Howell, Roz Whitaker-Heck, Ernie Green, Angelie Chong, Mara Moran, The Core Family, Gina Baysmore, and of course for the music, Jesse Gallagher. Thanks to Cosmic, and also thanks to Offchain. And most of all, thank you for listening. And just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast DC, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors. A dialogue on race in America.